0: Welcome back to the Synaptic Tales podcast with your hosts, Emma Hancocks, TVM Tech Advisor, and Mark Lowry, RCVS and European Specialist in Veterinary Neurology and Co-Director of Movement Referrals. Mark, how are you today? Hi.
1: Hi, Emma. Yeah, no, nice to be back again. Ready yeah. to talk about more about epilepsy. Yeah, good. not wait.
0: Oh, good. Just as a reminder to our listeners, this is the third episode of The Smart Approach to Epilepsy. So if you're a new listener and you haven't listened to those first two episodes, please do pause this and head back to episode number one. If you're a regular listener, and hopefully we've got a few of you by now, you'll hopefully remember that we introduced a smart approach to epilepsy. That's TVM's new guide for first opinion practitioners. Over the last two episodes, we've chatted about the importance of owner communication and what we need to measure in order to manage our epileptic patients. And it goes without saying that once we've established those measurements, it's obviously time to advise the owner on what we have found. And in this episode, I'm really going to hand over to Mark, to be honest, because he's going to hopefully talk us through his key three areas to epilepsy treatment. So over to you, Mark.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Emma. Well, I should start again by saying that word treatment. I think that's a bad word. It should be banned because treatment to me implies a cure. And I think if you're wanting to cure a dog's seizures, you should give up right away. You know, I think we may get lucky. It might happen. I'm not going to say it never happens but it shouldn't be our expectation. So both the owners and ourselves should be ready that curing seizures completely is, is very unlikely to happen. But when we look at seizure management, I suppose you can break it up into three key areas and we can focus on each in turn. So I sort of want to look at management of the seizures themselves, management of the potential underlying cause, and then the last one is management of the owner. It sounds a bit
0: Managing the
1: owners, yeah, exactly. Managing the owners sounds a bit wrong, but but actually, the owners do need to know what's happening, and there's a really big discussion around what you do to help them through it, so they know what to expect, and hopefully, in turn, then really trust your word and know that we're doing the right thing. So, we'll start with management of the seizures. Yeah, we're looking at various conventional medications, and as with any medication, we have to look to the cascade and think: what are the drugs out there that we can use to manage seizures? There's this ACVIM pyramid of hierarchy that describes all the recommended anti-epileptic treatments based on their effectiveness their efficacy and how they work yeah and also the quality of evidence out there that helps you to know which one we should use the best choices then are at the top of the pyramid and then as you go to the bottom of the pyramid, there's the ones that maybe haven't quite got that established efficacy and are kind of alternative choices to add into the top of the pyramid medications
0: it sounds like a really useful tool because we all want to be like evidence-based when it comes to our medication options and trawling through the literature ourselves is really hard.
1: Yeah, so it's a useful little tool. Now, when we go to this pyramid, I mean, before we start these medications, I think the other thing that an owner needs to be aware of, and this is again a figure that I think is quite a scary negative figure, is that up to 30% of dogs with idiopathic epilepsy may never achieve adequate control of their seizures right. with these conventional medications. So. That's pretty disappointing. And if you just put it down to like, you know, if you think of three, three owners coming in to see you with, with epileptic dogs, one of those three is going to be really quite disappointed, whatever you do. And so it's not, it's not you that's the problem. You know, it's the dog's epilepsy that's yeah. the problem. So never be worried about that. Now, looking at this, this pyramid at the top there, the, the, the main medication for me and the one that's licensed for use in epilepsy is phenobarbital. So I, I feel that's kind of a first line. I should bring in a here because that's also a medication that we can consider as first-line medication. My feeling with it is it's, it's very useful early on in epilepsy. Right. So if you've got dogs that aren't having frequent fits and the owners aren't too concerned yet, then I think amepitone is a very reasonable choice. But as soon as the owners are approaching you with a concern, then I would go to phenobarbital and, and skip the step where we, we try a meptoine. But then after that, That's when we can start to add in medications as we go along. And the thing about medicating dogs with seizures it's there's an approach. Well, if we think about analgesia, analgesia in the veterinary world is about using lots of different medications at lowish doses to achieve nice control of pain.
0: Like a multimodal type approach. Absolutely.
1: And that's, that's a fairly standard thing that we're all very familiar with as vets. Now with epilepsy, it's quite different because what you want to do with epilepsy is you want to exploit each medication to its fullest potential first before adding in another medication, and so with phenobarbital, we'll do everything we've talked about in the previous podcast, where we get it up to the right dose, check the serum concentration's good, and when we're at that level, if seizures are still not controlled, what I'm doing is I'm adding in another medication. Yeah. I very rarely stop a medication, and the indications to stop an anti-epileptic medication are only if you've got adverse effects from it. So yeah. I'll be adding in. A second, potentially a third, who knows, a fourth medication to these dogs to get them under control. Now, the other factor, of course, is when we're giving all of these medications, we want to make sure the dog remains as normal as possible. And we've talked about that. I mean, I think of it like a scale where, on the one hand, you've got the side effects of the medication that you're giving. And on the other hand, you've got control of the seizures. And you really want to balance that scale. And that scale is going to be different with every dog you see. So you're going to have the dogs that maybe have. Very, very frequent fits. And so the owners will tolerate more side effects in order to control those seizures. You may have the dogs that seizure infrequently, but because the postictal signs are really objectionable, yeah. say an aggressive dog yeah. following a seizure, just one seizure every six weeks may be too much for that owner. Because yeah. they're like the, the aggression they're seeing from their pet is really difficult to cope with. We've mentioned children in the family and things like that make it more of a concern. So actually, they may tolerate more adverse effects from the medication to try and really reduce seizures in that dog than, say, a dog that's seizuring once every six weeks but is otherwise completely happy afterwards and and doing well. So that's my approach to managing the seizures and thinking about what we use and when we need to use it.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point on the side effects and balancing any adverse side effects because these can change if we... Obviously, we don't want to, but they can sometimes affect the dog's demeanor behavior sometimes as well for our patients that we only see them when they come into us and we don't know what they're doing at home. It definitely is a balance between that kind of quality of life and that seizure control at the end of the day.
1: And I think it's hard because you'll get owners that come in and they'll tell you that the phenobarbital has changed how their dog is behaving. And the dog can look normal to you in the consult. In the past, we might have blamed phenobarbital a little bit for that but I think actually it's the wiring of the brain. You know, there's a neurodiversity in idiopathic epilepsy that maybe we've not understood. And the other thing with medication is if medication is causing these changes, I often like to make an owner really stick with a medication for a period of time. So you start phenobarbital. The first couple of weeks you could get some side effects, but very often dogs will become tolerant to them and they'll, they'll disappear. So that covers the management of the seizures. We then need to look at the underlying cause. And Again, there's so much we can talk about here. Now, we have talked about monitoring the liver. And the reason I bring that up here is we've got to also think about what blood tests and what things we're going to be doing at the very beginning that, that allow us to make sure we're, we're dealing with the right type of epilepsy. So epilepsy literally means recurrent seizures. That's all it means. So it means a dog yeah. is having repeated seizures. So epilepsy can happen for so many different reasons. And when we've been talking, I've probably kind of usually been defaulting to referring to idiopathic epilepsy. There isn't a single test that's gonna make you know you have got idiopathic epilepsy. I think we have to be realistic and we have to say, well, how can we be sure that what we're dealing with is idiopathic epilepsy? Now, the first thing is, is those blood tests. And it's so straightforward to do very basic blood tests at the beginning. And I would do exactly the same blood tests here as I would do for monitoring dogs that are on phenobarbital. You want to do something more for the owner than just counsel them on the seizures. Is talk about blood testing the dog because it's the right thing to do. Get the dog through, do the bloods, and then send them home, hopefully with a selection of blood tests that show normal results. Now, what I find there is we haven't fasted the dog. Yeah. So it's not been through a 12-hour fast. And that is really, really important because I've seen a lot of dogs in the past where the blood tests were done by the vet and all the right blood tests were done so they've done their glucose they've looked at the urea the albumin they've done all of those those parameters that we talked about earlier to rule out problems with liver function but what they haven't done is they haven't starved the dog we need to look at a fasted glucose if the dog has eaten recently even if it's a dog with hypoglycemia as a cause for the seizures it might appear normal on a glucometer and a glucometer is really cheap. The test for that is, is, is peanuts in comparison to everything else we do. The owners need to know that actually you're going to want to get that dog back in on another day and get them back in when they've been starved to repeat some of those parameters. The glucose for me is the key one. And I say that if the glucose is less than three and a half millimoles per litre, just keep an eye on that dog. Maybe check it again. If it's well below three and a half, then be worried. Yeah. But if it's sort of three to three and a half, which is slightly higher than the textbooks say, I'd probably be checking that again every couple of weeks because it could be that dog has hyperglycemia-causing seizures. Insulinoma is the most common reason for that, amongst many other conditions, but that's the common reason for it. So we talk about idiopathic epilepsy being in dogs between the ages of six months and six years. I've seen young, young pups with idiopathic epilepsy that are only a month or two. I've seen elderly dogs that are 10, 11, 12 years old develop idiopathic epilepsy. But what we're saying is when they're in that age range, that's the most common diagnosis.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: If I get a dog over six that's having seizures, I'd really, really, really want to look at the glucose because that's what's gonna help me know, you know, could it be hypoglycemic and hence an insulinoma? And then that's a whole different management strategy. You know, we don't wanna give that dog phenobarbital because we're just masking the yes. fact that it's hypoglycemic. Yeah. To give some tips on that, I mean, because I am worried. I, I worry there's a lot of dog, hypoglycemic dogs out there that we miss. And so the other tip on that, which, which can come up when we're talking about seizures, we, we always talk about seizures, but we also want to think about behavior outside of seizures. We focus so much on the seizure themselves that we want to kind of find out how the dog is in between the fits. So if you have a hypoglycemic dog with fits, you're going to find rather than being a typical epileptic dog where they have seizures when they're relaxed, you might find they are having seizures more when they're active or associated with exercise. That makes sense. Exercise. It may even be associated with mealtimes or even just before mealtimes. They're getting a bit hungry, their body's not coping because the insulin levels are potentially quite high and these dogs are then going into a seizure. Yeah. And the other one is a dog with hypoglycemia will be abnormal in between the seizures. Indeed, a dog with anything other than idiopathic epilepsy will be abnormal in some way. You may find the dog has occasional collapsing or stumbling they can also almost look like a dog with cataplexy. These dogs have momentary loss of muscle tone and sort of have little brief collapses or, or, or falls. Now they may not completely collapse. They might, they might just be very, very subtle, but if you're seeing that in between the fits, as well as your typical generalized tonic-clonic seizures, that should just be a warning sign that there's something else going on other than epilepsy. And that leads me on to say, with idiopathic epilepsy, if you've done all the blood tests and they all come back normal and you have a dog aged between six months and six years when they've had their first seizure, and if you ask the owner the question, is your dog otherwise normal in between fits, then what I'd say is if they answer yes to that question and everything else is normal, we can actually say that that dog is 97% likely to have idiopathic epilepsy. The reason I mention that, we haven't mentioned the three scary letters of MRI yet. <laughs>
0: We've been actively avoiding that conversation for now.
1: (laughs) We have, and and I feel a bit bad. I'm only bringing it up now because, and, and please don't turn off because I've said MRI. Many of these patients don't need an MRI. I think if you've got a dog between six months and six years that's otherwise normal, you don't need to go spending lots of money on an MRI scan to just check the brain is normal because all the clues are indicating the brain is likely to be normal and you've just got an epileptic patient to manage with medication. MRIs can be really expensive, so owners don't want to do it, and you'll still be in the same position at the end of that as you were at the beginning, that you now just more strongly suspected idiopathic epilepsy than before. And if you sat that owner down and said, well, I'm already 97% confident, the reason for the MRI is to just get that 3% lack of confidence, if you like, and, and quash it completely, and I don't think that's necessary.
0: Yeah. You're saying this as a referral clinician as well I am, who I has am. access to his MRI absolutely and, <laughs> and actually
1: it's so frequent we'll get owners that come in who have been referred for an MRI scan and actually after this sort of discussion the owners choose well actually let's not go for the MRI scan let's just continue with managing appropriately yeah and so that's where you know discussion is really important around that
0: yeah that's actually really useful for kind of first opinion practitioners to hear as well because that 97% we all have those cases where they've come in with their first seizure you've had a chat to the owner you've taken some bloods and then you get them back and they're normal and it's now what do you refer them or don't you refer them and I've never knew in practice how confident I could be in that diagnosis so it does help to put a fairly high number at 97% I think it's
1: huge I'll say well yes we can do If, if you're one of those people that just wants to know Mm-hmm. the mri scan is for you
0: absolutely i think as much as and um, maybe we're maybe going into our next oh we're leaving some spoilers again for the realistic part of the smart approach isn't it it's that i'm never going to with withhold them if they want to go for referral i'm never going to stop it it's just making sure that we are realistic and we're advising them right about what is the likely outcomes from this, That's and right. we're not going to find a miracle
1: it's, it's never wrong to refer these dogs, never wrong. And I think owners always get a lot from it because we're fortunate enough in the referral setting to have a lot more time to sit down and speak to these owners because, I mean, we do, we charge more in terms of they have a much longer consult, so we charge more for that consult than in a first opinion setting. And there's nothing wrong with actually saying, well, look, you do need to come in for a longer consult to get all of this and charge more for it. That's yeah. fine. I th- and actually, that, that could be a big solution. For many many of the listeners that yeah. actually doing a double consult or three times consult and charge more for it to deliver this information
0: these are often emergencies when they come in so they're often stacked in an already full consult list in first opinion practice you talk to them as much as you can reassure them take some bloods maybe actually schedule in a follow-up consult even if you can double book it out for instance so you know you've got time like i've got these bloods this is what this means and then you can They've had time to digest it for at least a day or so, a few days. This is obviously if you're sending bloods away or whether you're doing them in house, of course, but scheduling that second appointment, if you can, making it slightly longer, then at least you've got that time booked out to have a chat with them.
1: No, I think that's good. And, and you know, the other thing that actually leads on nicely too, when we're talking about managing seizures is you do that, but don't be afraid right from day one to start anti-epileptic medication. So we've talked all about the different causes. Let's ignore what the cause is. You know, it's a dog with seizures. There's nothing wrong with starting phenobarbital for that dog. It gives the owners something to go away with. So they feel more reassured. They may not, may not have had all that information yet about what it's going to do and stuff like that, but at least they've got something that's managing the immediate problem. Maybe you're waiting to refer it. Maybe, maybe the owners really want an MRI scan, but start phenobarbital. You know, it's not going to affect the results of blood testing or anything like that down the line, not significantly. So I've got absolutely no problem with starting medication straight away.
0: That's interesting. I it comes back to, again, another previous conversation. We're more than happy to start other medications Yeah. at that first consult. So why is it different for anti-epileptic drugs?
1: That's right. Well, it, this is where it is like analgesia. You know, we yes. talked in the last one about how you know, we don't treat epilepsy like we'd manage pain with a multimodal approach. But in this case, we can. You start it straight away. There's nothing that should stop you doing that. Unless there's a glaring liver problem, but then you start a different anti-epileptic medication. You know, I mean, if if there really is a clear indication this dog has raging liver disease, then start something like levotrastam. It's off license, but it's, you know, it's metabolized by the, or it's it's excreted by the kidneys. So a very appropriate choice in those cases.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess you are more likely to start anti-epileptic drug if they've come in after a severe seizure or particularly long one or status, obviously, you're going to want to start something straight away and you might not have those blood results. Straight away,
1: that's right. And and actually, status. We we need to talk about status a bit. I know that is that's a really distressing situation, and it's not unusual for a dog for its first seizure to be status. And then you can imagine how much more di- distressing that is for the owners. Not Absolutely. only are they seeing a seizure, but the seizure is not stopping. What I would say about status epilepticus, though, is just because you're seeing a severe seizure doesn't mean you've got a severe underlying cause. So. I will see dogs that have idiopathic epilepsy whose first presentation is status. So if we can manage the status epilepticus, then this dog could still have a really good outcome. You know, status epilepticus doesn't mean brain tumor. I know an (laughs) owner would be very worried that they come and go, well, it must be a brain tumor. And it's like, well, no, not necessarily. And actually it's quite unusual for a brain tumor to present as status as the first presentation. Never say never.
0: Yeah, you've said it now, tomorrow.
1: (laughs) Exactly, a busy, busy day then. (laughs) The other thing here, I suppose, is, and with status, the other thing about status and, and indeed with, with seizures in general, is owners always like to blame toxicities. So when they come in with a dog that's seizuring, they'll often think it's a neighbour that's yes. poison <laughs> their dog. Or it it's been drinking from the local canal
0: Oh yeah. and something See- to do with rats. This is like seizure bingo for me right now. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes. What the owners think it is. <laughs> exactly.
1: so, so, you know, so that, that malicious neighbor or that, you know, that terrible canal water. Yeah, all right. You, you can't sit there at the time of the concert. It's definitely not that because who knows, you know, these things could, could happen. Unlikely, but they could happen. What I would say about them is, is when it's recurrent seizures, You can rule them out so yes if it's having status today and it's really bad fine but if it's having a few seizures every week for the next few weeks that's a very dedicated toxicity criminal out there that really is getting to your dog very frequently to cause it as soon as we remove that toxin the seizures should stop and yeah, I mean, I suppose with toxicities, if there is a toxicity, often you have other clues. I mean, maybe the owner did actually see when they know there's a toxin that's been ingested and things. Yeah, and I suppose it's a good opportunity to say, TVM have an antitoxin range, don't they?
0: We do. So yeah, thanks for the plug there, Mark. <laughs> but it is something that we actually discuss in both of our kind of neurology type lunch and learns, but also our antitox lunch and learns, and there is definitely like a, a crossover. If, and this is what we would say, if you've never seen that patient before with seizures and they suddenly come in with status epilepticus, you would want to rule in or out toxins and maybe have a think about, is there a toxicological cause? It was often preceded by other things. And I think that's something that if they do come in status, that still want that history because it may have been preceded by tremors muscle like shivers and things like that that the owner hasn't thought about necessarily at the time that is to say then if they come in with tremors there could be a likelihood it's going to progress so yeah that's probably my little spiel on toxins
1: (laughs) no and, and and with status with the management of that i mean it's a good time to bring up the fact it's another one where you need a team effort status is a pretty intimidating presentation for a vet to deal with let alone the owners so don't be afraid with status to i mean because because when you present with this again this whole situation of a panic and you haven't tried to function in a panicking scenario so of course the advice is not to panic but you will you will it's inevitable because you it will it's hopefully something yeah. you don't come across too frequently but my view with it is yes there's the diaspora we can give that IV or rectally, depending on, on the access. But you want to get, like, hopefully people around you, other vets, other nurses in the practice to help place an IV. Things like taking the dog's temperature, get bloods for imagining all of this. This is stuff that can all be going on, and you just need to delegate delegate what you need to do. But what it says in textbooks, it says, give diazepam. I think, you know, it says anywhere between half to two mg per gig IV. And then wait five to ten minutes for the seizure to stop. Now five to ten minutes. Is That's a long, a long time.
0: time. And if
1: it's status and it's not gonna stop, it probably won't stop. So what the textbook then says, is it textbooks nowadays? It's probably like well, it's probably like
0: Google now or something.
1: <laughs> but it says give a second dose of injectable diazepam at a similar dose and wait five to ten minutes. So if you if you're following this strictly, twenty minutes might have passed where the dog is still fitting. Yeah. I don't like doing that, and I'll be honest. My experience is diazepam isn't quite the drug there that will stop everything, and that's not. You may get lucky, but it isn't. So, what what you want to be doing is you want to be loading some medication now. If the dog's never had phenobarbital in its life, we can give IV phenobarbital at a loading dose. This is when doses get very boring on a podcast,
0: <laughs> but people love doses because well, if something people that are
1: we... driving now, I'm going to have to ask them to pull over onto that's the hard true. shoulder, grab a pen. <laughs> But no, the, the, the loading dose is, I mean, we give 20 to 24 mg per kg as a loading dose. But that sounds we, massive. It is. And that's why we don't give it all at once. Okay. So we want to divide that up. And so we do it into like bite-sized chunks of four mg per kg at a time. So you give a four mg per kg dose of phenobarbital IV. You're meant to wait five <laughs> to 10 minutes. So loads of time has passed now and dog's still fitting. What I do is I give it. If the dog is still fitting when I finish giving it, I'll slowly give another dose. I'll keep going until either the seizure has stopped, which is hopefully what happened. Yeah. Or until I've reached that 24 mg per gig total. It's very possible the dog could still be fitting then. Now, I would say at that point, you just want to do what you're good at. And I think what vets do really, really well is anesthesia. You're doing it daily. It's something that happens in the practice all of the time. And I think that's when you're in your kind of in your zone where you function best. There's nothing wrong with anesthetizing that dog then. Because with generalized tonic-clonic seizures in status, anesthesia will fix it. Only temporarily, but it will fix it and it gives you thinking time. Yeah. And this is where I go right back to the beginning when that dog first presents. Because if you know all of this, great. You can keep it in your head and you can do it in the steps I've described. But if a dog presents in status, actually one of the easiest things to do right from the beginning is an the, the dog. Because then it stops fitting It allows you to find notes, look in books, look up doses, And get everyone on board to get that dog managed and there's nothing wrong with doing that and then hopefully you'll be giving that dog the best care without everyone panicking around you that's really good advice so i quite like that with status but it's just meant i've gone completely off beast again
0: (laughs) no but we've gone into really good information i i feel like i would never have thought to go straight to anesthesia but you're right it's going to stop that seizure activity it's going to buy us some time i just wonder how do you then stop do you give your phenobarbital or diazepam or whatever first?
1: So I think in that scenario. So if you've now got a dog intubated and anesthetized and hopefully the seizures stopped, what I'd do is I'd if, if the dog hasn't been on phenobarbital before, I'd give it the the first loading dose of phenobarbital IV and then I'd start to recover the dog. But what I'd do is I'd keep it in sternal because there's this propofol paddling thing that people talk about. Isn't yeah. There? And so if you've got a dog that's just been given propofol and then you're recovering it, it might start to paddle. You won't know, is that propofol? Is it the seizure? If you keep them in sternal, then if it is sort of paddling in that probably is more the seizure as opposed to the propofol.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And then if you're seeing that, it tells you, well, let's give another four mix per kick as you're recovering. But actually, you might find you need to induce it back again and wait a little bit longer. Yeah. And so I'd keep recovering the dog intermittently, hoping it will come around fully without fitting. But if it does, you give another loading dose. Hopefully, that will fix it.
0: Perfect. No, that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like we have gone a little bit off piece. We were talking about management of the seizures, management of the underlying cause, and cause then we went on to toxicities and status and things like that. I think we are a little bit off-course. But I think your last thing you wanted to talk about, correct me if I'm wrong, is management of the owner. Yeah. So We've kind of touched on it, but if you wanted to say any more there.
1: We do. Well, well, when we're going on about this, every owner has different circumstances. So there is the reason why you never get any bets, say, this is when to start medication, or this is what you do with epilepsy. It's because there is no right answer and it depends on so many things. One owner will want a very different strategy to another owner. So you do need to kind of sit down with the owners, find out their concerns. That may sound silly because you'll say, well, of course it's the seizures, but it isn't always, it yeah. could be the postictal phase is yeah. their concern. And so what you'd have to say is, well, there's no way we, cause I'll have owners that approach me and say. We don't mind the fits at all. They're fine. They're infrequent. They're not a problem. But it's how my dog is in that post-dictal phase. And the aggression is the common one that comes up. But we can't give medication to stop post-dictal phases without, well, we have to stop the fit. So it comes back to the same thing, but the owner would need to understand that. And they might even ask for something to administer during the fit that will make the post-dictal stage go away. And it's like, no, that, that the horse has already bolted then. You know, yeah. The fit started. We know what's to come. So you have to talk through strategies to try and reduce the risk with an aggressive dog in that temporary post-ictal period. But by doing that and speaking to the owner and actually listening to the owner, it might seem really obvious, but it just engages the owner much more with you and it allows a much more collaborative environment in which you can actually get on top of the dog's epilepsy one way or another. And that doesn't mean you'll necessarily be successful in your own, you might think, well, actually, you know, the seizures still don't feel well controlled, but the owner can feel better managed and that's what's important, that they know that you are doing everything you can. You might not be the super vet that you need to be to fix it, but none of us are. Yeah. No, one, no one has those skills. You know, we're not God. We're just trying to get things managed as best we can. So by doing that, hopefully it allows an owner to understand that we are doing our best. It may not be the cure that they want, but it's the best we can do. And hopefully everyone's on board.
0: Great. Thanks, Mark. That's a really useful summary. I think. Splitting it down into those three stages, so management of seizures, management of that underlying cause, and then not forgetting to manage the owners and their expectations is really useful. And I think sometimes we can forget as first first opinion clinicians as well, and that for us, as much as it's uncommon, it's not as uncommon for our owners, and for them, it's completely new information. so no, that was really useful. But unfortunately, I think that's all we've got time for really on this podcast. so Just a plug, please tune in next time where we'll be discussing and moving on to the fourth installment of the SMART approach, which is to be realistic. It is maybe as you've picked up, we are always talking about the owners and being realistic with them, but just a little cliffhanger. Hopefully we're going to talk about some of the other perhaps non-medicinal therapeutic options where they might fit, how to be realistic with those as well. So do tune in for that next episode. Thanks again, Mark.
1: Thanks, Emma. Bye-bye.
0: See you soon. Bye.